Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to RUF. I'm so glad to be with you tonight. I know that this is that time of the semester when you're wondering, like, how do I already feel stressed out about the end already? But you do. So thanks for taking time to take this hour and be with us, to worship with us, to gather as a community. We've been going through the Psalms this semester, and we've been going through the Psalms because God is a God who speaks to us. He spoke creation into existence. He has always guided His people by His Word. Jesus Christ Himself is God's Word made flesh. The speaking of God turned into the Savior, a person, a man. And He speaks to us still through the Bible, through His Word. And He gives us the Psalms because even though He speaks to us, we don't always know how to react. We don't always know how to respond. We don't always know how to follow. And so He actually gives us words to put in our own mouths to speak back to Him. And so tonight we'll be looking at Psalm 70 to see how we speak to God in the midst of our anger. So if you have your Bible or it's printed on your handout, It'd be great for you to have it in front of you as I read Psalm 70. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. You pray with me, please, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for this chance to be together, and I'm grateful for a chance to learn how to speak to you. I pray that even as we listen, that you'd be speaking to us, that your spirit would be working through your word so that we might love you more and love each other. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you have gone through situations that just made you crazy, that just made you angry. Uh, The situation I thought of as I was preparing for this sermon comes from an episode of The Office where Pam has just discovered that her boss, Michael Scott, is dating her mother. <laughs> and she's freaking out. And she's, she's very, very angry with, with Michael for doing this, starting this relationship with Helene, her mother. And uh, as the next couple episodes go on, eventually Pam kind of warms up to the idea. And there's this uh, moment where Michael has planned this birthday double date with him and Helene and then Jim and Pam, and they're at this fancy restaurant, and there's decorations and flowers and balloons, and he's scrapbook poem, a present for her that's very beautiful. And Pam realizes, like, wow, he actually makes my mom happy. Maybe I can be on board with this. It's just at that moment that Michael realizes that he doesn't really want to date someone 25 years older than him. And that she doesn't really want to go skydiving, and maybe he would someday. And she's already been to Europe, but he can borrow her guidebooks. And so at this birthday lunch, he dumps her on her birthday. And Pam is furious again for dating, for Michael dating her mother and then dumping her on her birthday. And so her and Michael get into this, this fight of anger, this cold hardness towards one another. And eventually, he pulls her into his office, tries to bribe her forgiveness with a raise, 
but she won't forgive him. And so Michael says, what do you want me to do? Do you want a million dollars? Do you want to hit me? Do you want me to get down on my knees and beg for forgiveness? She says, yeah, I want to hit you. I want to punch you in the face as hard as I can. Like, what would you choose there if you were in that situation? Hope you never are. I, I find it an interesting multiple choice test because we, we face that kind of question in our own lives and in our own hearts all the time. In the midst of your anger, like, what's it going to take to get over it? What's it going to take to resolve it? What's it going to take to move past it? This psalm exists, and psalms all over the, this, this, the psalms exist because we get angry at other people. Because they hurt us, because they mistreat us, because they betray us, because they ignore us. We get angry at other people all the time. It doesn't always look like blow-up explosion angry. Sometimes it looks like cold silence angry. Sometimes it looks like hard-hearted bitterness angry. And most of the time, if you're like me, we don't even know how angry we are. But we get, we get angry at our parents. We get angry at our roommates and our friends and our teammates. We get angry at our professors. We get angry at our younger siblings. We get angry at this school. Some of us are angry at groups, at organizations, at a fraternity or at a sorority for treating us a certain way. We, we have these hurts that build up in us. And this psalm exists to help us know what do we do when we have this feeling of bitterness and resentment and anger towards another person? Like, what are we supposed to do as Christians when we feel the insecurity it causes, when we feel the bitterness it causes, when we start to shut down, what do we do? And what we're going to see is this, is that we, we pray Psalm 70, God leads us to do three things, to share our anger, to seek our joy, and to surrender our pride. To share our anger to seek our joy and to surrender our pride. So first, Psalm 70 leads us to share our anger. I, I think Christians tend to think of anger as wrong. Like anger is bad, anger is a sin, and so therefore like you shouldn't do it. And so if you have anger, you have to like let it go right away. Or maybe you're just going to avoid it. Or maybe you're going to pretend it's not there. Or maybe you're just going to repress it. Maybe you're just going to shove it down deep into that part of your heart that no one knows about where it's just going to fester and grow and multiply. We tend to think that anger is wrong. The, the reason that the Psalms are so helpful is because they actually show us that as Christians, our problem is not that we are too emotional. Our problem is that we are not emotional enough, that we see in the Psalms and we see in this Psalm deep and profound emotion, deep and profound anger, deep and profound pain. And as you see, as you read through the Bible, of course, you see the most obvious and most righteous anger in the Lord Jesus himself as he expresses anger over the misuse of his father's temple, as he expresses anger over death, as he expresses anger even at one of his friends, Peter, when Peter tells him to stop talking about how he's going to lay down his life. He says, get behind me. Get back. Be quiet. And what you see in, in the beginning and at the end, the end of the psalm is this Deep, passionate emotion. Uh, this is one of the things that's lost in translation. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. You could say it like this. God, hurry up. I need you now. 
That's make haste. And he ends it in the same way. Oh, Lord, do not delay. Oh, Lord, don't wait a second. I need you now. And then he goes into this stuff. This is not the kind of thing you'd, like, you'd think was going to be in the Bible. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Okay, somebody is after him. Someone's seeking his life. And he is actually asking God to put them to shame and confusion. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor. Let them fail. Let them be humiliated. For the people who delight in my hurt, let them turn back in shame. The people who say, aha, aha, the people who are laughing at me. You ever feel like people are laughing at you? You ever feel like people don't want what's best for you? You ever feel like people might even be glad if things don't go well for you? We don't, we don't know the specifics of the context like we do in some of the other psalms that have been written and that we've talked about. It's actually kind of helpful. It means whenever someone does something to you that makes you feel mad at them, whenever they hurt you and you have that emotion towards them, this is a psalm that's going to help us. And the first thing that we have to, that we have to do is do exactly what the psalmist is, which is that we have to learn how to be honest with ourselves. You have to let yourself feel your anger. You are not supposed to repress your anger. You are not supposed to ignore it. You are not supposed to pretend that everything's fine. You're supposed to let yourself feel. That's what David is doing. He's letting himself feel. And what is he doing with his anger? This is, this is of course, what's really important. What do you do with that anger? You share it. You shout it. But where? You share it with God. You speak your anger to God honestly. The the beauty of this is that God can handle all of your anger. He can handle all of your bitterness. He can handle all of your jealousy. He can handle all of your resentment. He can handle all of your comparison. He can handle all of your judgment. He, He can handle it. In fact, he is the only safe place for it to be expressed. He's the only person who's big enough and strong enough that it doesn't bother him. It doesn't phase him. It doesn't move him. It doesn't shake him. It doesn't deter him from his love and delight in you as his child. We have to learn how to let ourselves feel. So that feeling that you have towards that person in your life who just says those little things that just pick away and chip away at your self-esteem and make you feel less than. You have to let yourself feel that. And then you have to express it to God. And this is what's important to say because this stuff seems kind of mean, right? It doesn't seem very loving to pray for someone else to come to shame and dishonor. It doesn't feel very loving to pray for someone else to fail. What you got to remember here is that there's a big, big difference between praying for God's justice and seeking it yourself. There's a big difference between praying for God's protection over your life and then ensuring it yourself against another person. There's a big difference between telling God that you need help and hurting someone else to ensure that you succeed. There's a big difference. And the difference is that your anger is rightly expressed towards God. Some of the reasons you feel angry uh, are wrong. It's you being selfish. But some of it's right. Sometimes it's the proper and righteous reaction. 
And we have to learn how to channel that towards God. It means you actually have to tell him how you feel. You have to let yourself feel, and then you have to tell God how you feel. That, that, that difference between telling God and taking action yourself is important because usually when we take action, it either doesn't make us feel better or it doesn't go so well. When we attack back, it does not heal the relationship. In fact, uh, in the end of this episode, Pam actually does slap Michael in the face as hard as she can. And Jim asks her, do you feel better? She says, no, you were right. It doesn't help. It actually will not heal your soul. The only one who can heal your soul in the midst of all its anger is God. So we've got to learn how to be honest, and we've got to direct it towards God. So this week, I want you to pay attention when you feel bitter towards someone else. I want you to pay attention when you feel jealous of somebody else. I want you to pay attention when you look down on someone, when you compare yourself to them and you find that you come out on top. I want you to pay attention to what you feel when someone ignores you. I want you to pay attention to what you feel when someone puts something on a group me that opposes your idea, which you thought was a good idea. Sometimes these are little, little things that cause deep, deep darkness in our hearts. Pay attention. What are you feeling? And do you trust that God can handle it if you're honest to him? Are you going to call out to God, or are you just going to fantasize in your head about what you wish you could say to them if there were no consequences? Are you going to call out to God, or are you going to lash out in anger, treat them exactly the way they treated you? Are you going to to call out to God, or are you going to shove it down and pretend that everything is fine? Praying Psalm 70 actually leads us to share our anger. The second thing it does is that it leads us to seek our joy. The the temptation is to think that the, the thing that will heal us from our anger, the thing that will heal us from our bitterness and our hard-heartedness is for the circumstance to get better. It's for the person to change and apologize. It's for us to come out victorious, for everyone around us to agree that it's their fault and not ours. We, we think that's the thing that's actually going to bring us peace. It's going to bring us happiness. And, and the claim of the Bible is that there's actually no joy in winning. There's actually no joy in revenge. And there's certainly no joy in repressing what's really on your heart. Even when you're angry, the only way you can actually have joy is in God. It's in seeking God. That's why David says in Psalm 4, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. This, we, we talk about this almost every week, that our circumstances actually don't have to determine how we're doing in our heart of hearts because God is bigger than our circumstances because his promises endure through every trial, through every tribulation, through every emotion, through every dramatic situation about housing for third year, all the things that are causing you confusion and pain God's promises of love are still with you. And so we're actually called to to seek God, to find our life and our joy and our peace in, in him. And here's what this means. This actually affects what you say to God, what you speak to Jesus. It means that when you're feeling angry against another person for them doing something wrong to you, or something that just annoyed you, or something that hurt you deeply, one of the things you have to pray to God 
is that he would give you what you really need. And when you say these words, they become more and more true of your heart where you say, Jesus, I'm angry, and what I need is you. Jesus, I'm hurting, and what I need is you. Jesus, I'm jealous, and what I need is you. Jesus, they did this to me. What I need is you. I I find it really interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, it's right after Jesus warns us against judging others that he says, uh, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and it will be given to you. He says that right after he says, don't judge others. And, and what, what is Jesus promising? Is Jesus promising he'll answer every prayer with yes, that if I want a new fishing pole and I have enough faith and I ask it will appear on my front step? Jesus is saying, if you seek me, if you ask for me, if you knock on the door of heaven and want a reply, I promise you will get one. I promise I will speak to you. I promise I will open my heart to you. I promise I will love you and be with you forever. He says, when you seek me, you will find me. Now, we don't always experience that how we want and when we want But his promise is that when we seek him, we'll find him. And in him is life and joy and hope and love and goodness and truth and beauty and justice and righteousness. Jesus says, if you want those things, you can have them, but they're not going to happen from you working it out or for everyone acquiescing to your desires so you never have to be angry. You're only going to find it in me. Our life has to be built on God and not on our circumstances working out. This becomes really, really important in relationships because if you have a relationship with someone else, if you have a friendship with someone and you are just hoping that you never let each other down, you're just hoping that you never hurt each other, you're just hoping that you never do anything to hurt each other's feelings, the relationship will not last very long. And some of you in this room are experiencing this right now where you have good friends, but you have things between you that have hurt you. And you're still friends, but it's not quite the same, not quite as much trust, not quite as much intimacy, not quite as much vulnerability. Do you feel that? It's because something has happened between you guys that's caused one of you to be angry, to become bitter, to become resentful, to become jealous. And you're building your life on that instead of on God. This is the same reason why I'll tell you that if you're a Christian, I know not everyone here is a Christian, that if you're a Christian, that it's it's never good and wise to be in a dating relationship with someone who's not a Christian. Because if you don't both build your life on God, then your relationship is fragile. It's breakable because no one can mess up. No one can hurt the other. No one can make the other angry because if so, it must be wrong. If so, it's going to lead to bitterness. It's going to lead to distance. It's not going to work. A Christ-centered relationship means that each of you has your life built on God. And that before you even are dealing with your anger with each other, you're dealing with it with your Father. You're naming it, you're expressing it to Him, and you're finding your life in Him. In the midst of our anger, we actually seek our life and our joy in God. Lastly tonight, Psalm 70 leads us to surrender our pride. That's the result, the result of honestly sharing 
our anger and our seeking our joy in God is the surrender of our pride. And this is really counterintuitive because it doesn't seem very strong if you can't handle your anger, if you can't handle your emotions, does it? And it doesn't seem very strong if you need help from someone else to have a stable and good and peaceful life. You should be able to manufacture that yourself, right? You should be able to maintain that yourself. That's what real strength is, right? But when we know that God is great, it actually frees us to be weak. And I'm telling you that to acknowledge your weakness, to acknowledge your need, to acknowledge your poverty before God is actually freedom. Because it means it's not up to you to maintain this wall of false stoic stability that seems like it can handle everything while your soul is crushed inside. You don't have to do that. You can actually trust God to handle things. You actually trust God to fulfill you. You can actually trust God for your life. So you can actually say, in the midst of your anger, even though you want to do something about it, what David says in verse 5, but I am poor and needy. It's the opposite of what the world tells you you should be. You should be rich and strong. Not so with God. Actually, freedom comes when we admit the truth that we are poor and needy. When we admit we can't deal with our anger by ourselves, when we admit that we can't solve these relationships by ourselves, when we admit that we can't change our past, that we can't change the things that have happened to us in our own story, that's actually freedom. It's actually a surrender to the one who is strong, to the one who loves you, to the one who cares for you, to the one who's writing your story, to the one who's unfolding his grace and mercy and forgiveness in your life. I've had a lot of conversations with you guys about a passage in 2 Corinthians 12. It's the passage I most hear students say is their favorite part of the Bible which is really encouraging to me. It's one of my favorite parts, too. It's where Paul's been talking about the thorn in his flesh. We don't know what this is, something that's been bothering him, and he keeps asking God to take it away. He says, three times I ask God to take it away, and God never takes it away. God's answer instead is, my grace is sufficient for you. My love is enough for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So he says, When I am weak, then I am strong. When I am poor and needy is when I'm secure. When I am poor and needy is when I'm stable. When I'm poor and needy is when I'm fruitful and abundantly provided for. When I'm poor and needy is when I experience the outpouring of the love of the Father through Jesus Christ. Anger feels like strength. And letting go of our anger is one of the hardest things there is to do. So I I, want to ask you this week, who do you need to be weak enough to admit that you need to deal with your anger? What person in your life do you have anger with? Do you have hard-heartedness or do you have bitterness with them? You need to admit to them it's not all their fault. 
When you embrace that you're poor and needy, it actually frees you, it empowers you to move towards people who you're experiencing anger with, with humility, with compassion, with honesty, and with love. The thing that will free you from comparison is to be poor and needy before God, not to be strong and angry. I'm, uh, I've mentioned this a couple times. I'm reading through the Narnia books with my oldest daughter, and last night we finished The Horse and His Boy, which is so, so good. I feel like I could just read the last chapter from my sermon and then pray, and it would be, it would be my best of the year. Uh, at the end of this, of this story, uh, uh, a wicked prince uh, named Rabadash from Tashban has uh, secretly invaded a country called Arkanland, which is right next to Narnia, a country that his country is supposed to be at peace with. He has, he has invaded because he is trying to get a stronghold in this part of the world so that he can sneak into Narnia and abduct Queen Susan to just take her from Care Paravel to be his queen when she's not having it, does not want to be with him for obvious reasons. He's crazy. Uh, but before he can surprise King Loon and his people at, the, at Anvard, our hero Shasta saves the day and warns them. And then he makes his way to Narnia where he travels with a, a Narnian army back to save and to help King Loon. And so there's this battle, and of course, Rabadash, this bad guy, uh, loses. And he is not a very gracious loser. And they consider beheading him on the spot, but instead they take him prisoner. And eventually they're having this kind of feast of victory. And uh, the king and his son of Archeland is there, and all our favorite friends from the story are there. And a couple of the kings of Narnia, Edmund and Lucy, king queen of Narnia, are there. And they bring out Rabidash, and Rabidash is just livid. He can't believe that he's being kept as a prisoner, and all he wants is to have his, his change taken off so he can fight to the death with whoever will fight him. And even though they had every right to keep him in prison, even though they have every right to kill him because he's committed treason, a mercenary act to try to kill their people, the, the good king decides that he's going to let him go. He says, if you promise never again to break the peace, I will let you go. He's basically saying, if you can let go of your anger and hatred, I'll let you go free. But Rabadash can't do it. He can't let go of his anger. He can't turn off his hate. It's, it's around this time that Aslan, the true great king of Narnia, shows up. And he encourages Rabadash. He says, let it go. Trust me, you want to take this deal. And Rabidash refuses, and he starts shouting things at Aslan. And right about this time, Rabidash's ears start to grow. And his face starts to get long, and he bends over, and his hands go on the ground. But now they're not hands, they're hooves. We find out that Aslan has turned him into a donkey. And he sends him back to his own kingdom as a donkey, uh, even with mercy, that when he appears in the, in the temple of Tash, he's actually going to turn back to himself that if he ever leaves the city again, he's going to turn back into the donkey. And even though he eventually becomes king, everyone knows he was a donkey one time. And so behind his back, they call him Rabidash the Ridiculous. We think it makes us strong not to let go of our anger. It, it actually makes us ridiculous. It makes us fools. It makes us incapable of love, we have got to deal with our anger. We have got to let it go. 
And friends, the good news of the gospel for you tonight is this. It's a reminder that God has dealt with his anger. God has dealt with his wrath against the people who hurt him, who rejected him, who ignored him, who were his enemies. And of course, that's you and that's me. That we have incurred because of our pride, because of our foolishness, because of our selfish desires, the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God, but he does not direct it towards us. He pours it all out on Jesus on the cross. He has directed all his anger towards Jesus, who has absorbed it, who has drunken it all in. He can take your anger and absorb your anger because he already has. Because he's already died for it. Because he's already risen from the dead and given you his spirit of peace because he loves you. So look to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you have refrained from pouring out your anger on us and instead you've poured it on your son. We praise you that there's now peace between us, that we used to be your enemies and now we are your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our hurt in the ways that we feel anger and resentment and bitterness and jealousy and comparison in our relationships. Lord, give us the courage to let ourselves feel and to direct it to you. Lord, give us the awareness to seek our life, not in our circumstances getting better, but in your great love, Jesus. And give us the courage to admit our weakness, to, the, to, to experience the freedom that comes from experiencing your strength and our weakness as the one who died for us in love. Jesus, we praise you for this in your name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>